And hopefully this discussion today is just the beginning of dialogue, it's the beginning of listening, and it's, it, this will continue as we learn to grow uh, into Christ-likeness uh, together. So why don't we start with a word of prayer right now. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you so much that the Word of God gives us language to talk about this, that we have a theological center that we can point to as believers in Jesus Christ, that you have come to tear down the dividing wall between us. Thank you that heaven is described as a place for every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And God, our prayer is that we would continue to grow in reflecting that reality in our own lives and our own relationships. And Lord, I pray that you would open our ears so that we would be able to hear what is being said and shared on the panel today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here really making this meeting effective. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as we all know, uh, racial tension has been in the news again in America, but that is not the only reason or even the main reason that we're here today. We're here because the Bible has a lot to say about grace and race, as we're calling the panel, and how Christians should think about it and act on it. Just a quick survey of some of the relevant Bible passages. Isaiah 58 calls us to serve the marginalized and the oppressed. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that we should serve people considered by others the least of these. Galatians 3.28 says there's no Greek or Jew or slave or free or even male or female in Christ because we're all one in him. In Revelation chapter 7, that's one of the many places in Revelation that John describes the new heaven and the new earth as a place for people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But as I shared in some of the services this weekend, the most compelling and relevant verse to me is Galatians 6.2, where it says that we're to bear one another's burdens, but how are we as Christians supposed to bear one another's burdens if we don't even know what those burdens are? And so that's what we are here to learn. And those verses all mean that those in churches like Twin Lakes Church who may happen to not be members of a, a minority group, if we happen to be members of the majority culture, we as Christians should be very deliberate about not being unconcerned about the difficulties that minorities face. So today what we want to do is spend time listening to voices, most of them from our own family here at Twin Lakes Church, that we may not have previously heard to hear their honest experiences and sorrows and burdens and hopes. Really, this is an amazing opportunity to learn and grow from one another. So I want to introduce our panelists, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask questions. We had a lot of you email me questions and post questions, and then we went through and grouped those questions. Some of them we combined, and then with the panel, we went through and picked some more questions to go over. We're going to try to get to as many of those questions as we can, but we, we do want to hear from our panelists. So let me start at the end. Jose Santian. Let's welcome Jose to the panel. I'll be introducing all the panelists so that you know where they're coming from. Jose oversees our Spanish language translation at Twin Lakes Church. For several years, pastored our Spanish language congregation here Jose's now in management at a local lighting company, and, but he has, of course, a lot of insight into the experience of Latinos in our area, and specifically, 
at Twin Lakes Church. He has a spectacular facility with languages, already having learned even Hebrew, just so he could read the Hebrew scriptures for himself better. And uh, I am really interested in hearing what Jose has to say. So once again, let's welcome Jose. And let me introduce Don and Nancy Williams. Uh, Don and Nancy, you also see them here in the pews at Twin Lakes Church. Nancy was born in Natchez, Mississippi. She is a licensed clinical social worker who works for Santa Cruz Superior Court Family Services. She is a holder of two master's degrees, a mother of four children, and she is the wife of Don Williams. And Don lectures at UC Santa Cruz. He oversees uh, the Rainbow Theater, uh, also has a master's degree, and I am amazed that he is here because his theater group is actually in performance this weekend. And it's excellent, by the way. I thought thir- saw it Thursday night, and it relates to our discussion today, too. It's, it's a great play called Detroit 67 about the 67 riots in Detroit. Fantastic. Go see it. They're doing it again today. Is that right, Don? And so I hope you can go see that. And Don and Nancy, as I said, are TLC attenders. In fact, Nancy's a PK, a preacher's kid, and they've both been involved in church leadership basically all of their adult lives. So let's welcome Don and Nancy Williams to the panel. And then we have Adrian Moreno. Adrian, as many of you know, is on staff here at Twin Lakes as our communications pastor. Adrian has an interesting perspective because Adrian's father is Colombian and his mother is Korean. And both of them were first-generation immigrants. Uh, Adrian was raised uh, in Florida, and before that, I think, in in New York. And based on my conversations with him, I know he has interesting insights into a variety of challenges involving immigrant families and Asians and Latinos. So, well, let's welcome Adrian to the panel as well. And then Regina Anyang. Regina has lived in Santa Cruz County and, and uh, been a very involved member here at Twin Lakes Church for over 25 years, longer than I've been here. She is married to her husband, Emma. And Emma's here somewhere. Emma, where are you? There he is right there. Great to have Emma here. And uh, Regina's uh, professional career in medical office and business management has spanned over two decades. She is passionate about being the hands and feet of Jesus She really has such a passionate faith, uh, and she has four children and four grandchildren. So I've got some catching up to do. So let's welcome Regina to the panel. And we get to, I am so excited about having Akemeni Yuan here. I became familiar with her work. She's an author, a blogger. Uh, her work has been on the Huffington, Huffington Post, uh, been quoted by the New York Times, by the Washington Post. But I became familiar with her columns through Christianity Today magazine. Uh, she has become really a leading young voice on this issue nationally. She received her MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary. She was the rep- recipient that year of the Green Prize in Christian Apologetics. She is passionate about sound orthodox biblical theology and how that directly relates to the issues we are talking about today. Let's welcome Akemeni. It's great to have her on the panel. Akemeni, she actually flew out from the East Coast from Philadelphia uh, to be with us this weekend, and you're wondering, how could we get such, you know, a leading voice here at Twin Lakes on this panel? She is Regina's niece, so we get to have her here, so... 
And uh, Regina and Emma Anyang were both uh, very insistent that Dr. Paul uh, Godin be on this panel as well because they, they felt like, through their relationship with him, he has a lot to offer to this discussion, too. Uh, and what a resume. After graduating from Princeton, Dr. Godin completed medical training at Stanford and the National Institutes of Health, specializing in pulmonary and critical care medicine, which he's practiced for over 20 years. He currently is getting another degree at Oxford University in the UK. How can one man do all this? And he's been a follower of Christ for 37 years and is passionate about this issue too. So let's welcome Dr. Paul Godin to the panel. What a great panel, huh? So thank you all so much for being here today and agreeing to be part of this. And I am praying and praying and praying that we can make progress in the way we understand and love one another here at Twin Lakes, especially related to these complicated issues. And let me just say this, I know I need help personally. And this could have been just a personal discussion with you all over lunch, but we invited a few people along to, uh, to eavesdrop. So here are, I, I've just got a pile of questions that have come in. And I'm not gonna say we gotta go in order. Whoever wants to jump in, just grab your microphone and jump on in. But we're going to start with this question because this one was probably the most common question that I got submitted. It's very blunt. Have you or a loved one ever experienced racism here in Santa Cruz or even specifically here at Twin Lakes Church? And in what form has it come? Who'd like to plunge in first? Well, can I, can I just ask some panelists to answer this question? I would like to ask Don and Nancy to start with this question. Uh, Don and Nancy not only are Twin Lakes attenders, they're neighbors of ours, and uh, they experienced something rather dramatic that you might remember from the front pages of the paper recently. Uh, their son, DJ, was a student at San Jose State, and uh, Don or Nancy, do you want to take the story from there? Okay, so this is a story I can take back three years now. It's almost uh, in its fourth year when it happened. Something that came in the newspaper almost daily and is also on CNN. Um, can you guys hear Don? The tragic news. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. I'm an actor, so I can definitely <laughs> speak up. Yeah. <laughs> but this... Let me do it my own way. My way is this way. If it comes from the heart, it'll go to the heart. So I was a little worried about this panel discussion and what I would say and how I could really help educate and edify the people here in Santa Cruz. But God puts his gifts everywhere. First of all, my son that I'm ready to speak on, he is my hero. So there's that perspective. He went through something that no child should go through. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. To pack your bags as a young freshman, leaving a school with a 3.8 you know, degree and, and just ready to go and take on the world. He decided to go to San Jose State to push forward in his training and learning of uh, schooling, he gets there and he finds himself in a dorm with the, the highest of highest of young men 
who are all pursuing this engineering degree on the very top floor. Eight folks in his room. Only to be dehumanized by his roommates. And I say that because it was very hurtful to have found out what was going on. It was very shameful to know that that exists in this world today. Even much more appalling when no one was really saying anything. For him to be accosted the way he was, literally a bike dock lock put around his neck, him locked in his room on many occasions. And this is all in the paper. To even go into a trial with a jury and to come out with the verdict that they came out with, it's appalling. Does racism happen here in the Santa Cruz and San Jose area? Yes, it does. Is it a daily thing? Yes, it is. Even those folks who stand by and do nothing, you're just as guilty. For we all know one thing, that any child, scriptures also point, for it, point to it, you know, harm not my kids, you know, and do my profit, no harm. So when you start messing with the little ones, we're talking about a baby of 17, he's a baby, y'all. And yes, we need to know what's going on with our baby. The law at least puts that out there. But he went through this. We went through this. And still going through it. Because even though things are resolved to some degree, but they're not really resolved because we know daily, just through our own son's eyes, how he's so involved and being involved with young men's groups on that campus now. Let them know that they too have a voice and that they can speak up and that they're not alone and that there are people of all walks and all talks of life that are there to support. But sometimes you gotta go through something to be able to see that. So I have a good story and there's a bad story. The good story is that there's been a many people who've stepped up who really felt that that was wrong, what happened to our son. And they expressed it. Not just through writing of a letter, but came out and support us in the court of law. That prayed with us. That wrote prayerful letters. And testified on their own behalf to give us strength to say, hang on. God is still there. He has not forsaken you. So, this is local. We're talking about a very, very bright young man who was not only the president of uh, his middle school, but we're also talking about a young man who is striving still to complete his degree at San Jose State. He did not let that turn him around. Praise God. I'm so glad to hear that. It, you know...
if you don't remember from the newspaper, I mean, it, it's painful to talk about the details, but he was chained up specifically so that he would look like a slave. Uh, he, there were racist slogans written on, mysteriously would appear on the whiteboard in his, in his room. There were a clan slogans and symbols that appeared, and this didn't happen on just one occasion. It happened on several occasions, specifically racially directed violence. And this did not happen in Mississippi in the 1950s or the 1800s. It happened at San Jose State a year and a half ago. So it, the racism it runs just beneath the surface and erupts above the surface right now, right here where we live. Nancy, is there anything you want to add to what Don shared about that experience? Not at this time. Not at this time. All right. Does it, thank you, Don, for sharing what you, what you did. I know that's hard to talk about, especially with it, with it being so fresh. But I really appreciate it. And I want you to know that I, I am praying for you guys, your family, for DJ. And I hope everybody here in this room who just heard that story because these are fresh wounds. If you are going to just jot yourself a note down on your phone or on a piece of paper right now, and you're going to pray for DJ and the Williams family to continue to heal through this, would you just kind of slip up your hand right now? That, that is something that's very, very important. This is real stuff. This is emotional stuff. This isn't just some objective thing we're talking about here. Uh, would anybody else like to talk about that? Ha have you personally experienced this locally or even, dare I ask, here? At Twin Lakes, what was that? So uh, I'll answer the question two ways. One in general, Santa Cruz, and then also here at Twin Lakes. Uh, <clears throat> when I was uh, learning how to read and write Hebrew, uh, I think, I suspect that I was followed home by somebody from the uh, Jewish temple here in Aptos. And one morning when I got up to go to church, um, I had a white truck and I parked it on the street. And I went to my truck, and I was surprised to see a big swastika spray-painted on my door. <clears throat> and then on the bed of the truck, it said uh, the word kike, which is a derogatory term for Jewish people. Now, I'm not Jewish, but um, <laughs> I think somebody followed me from the Jewish temple or something. So that's something that happened, and it was, it was very aggravating to wake up, and you know, right before you go to church, you, you see that. Uh, so that's something that happened in Santa Cruz. But... Uh, here at, at Twin Lakes, I just want to say, you know, the answers to the questions that I'm going to give are from a Hispanic perspective, uh, and I'm going to try to make it from a Christian setting, because this is where we are. We're a church, and we want to learn how this is affecting our church, uh, our church family. Uh, <clears throat> so here at Twin Lakes, I haven't really experienced racism. I wouldn't call it racism. I would call it more of a, an indifference to the Hispanic uh, population here in our county. Because in thinking about this, I was thinking, if you, if you are going to move to a new city that you know nothing about, and you, you, know, you were offered a good job, and you're thinking about relocating there, you would go and maybe go explore the city, you know, see you know, what, what the people are like and what the community is like. And if you went to the park and you saw you know, a bunch of green kids and some white kids, right? So you see a bunch of green kids at the park, you see white kids at the park. Then you go to the supermarket, and right there in the store, there's a bunch of green people, you know, and there's a bunch of white people, too. Then, you know, you decide to go check out the schools for your kids, and you go to schools, and you see that the kids in school, you know, there's, there's a lot of green kids in school and white. 
Then you decide, I'm going to go check out the church. You go to the church, and what would you expect to see in the church? You would expect to see a bunch of green people, right? Because that's what you've seen everywhere else. Um, <clears throat> and that's something that I, I just don't feel that Twin Lakes Church is reflecting our community. Because if you go out to Santa Cruz, you go to the markets, you go to the parks, you go to the schools, you go to different places, you're going to see a lot of us, you know, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of green people. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> just real quick, I, I tried to get some numbers, and I went to a page um, called Data USA. And I found numbers for 2015, and the numbers are that as of 2015, the, the population in Santa Cruz was 57% white and 33% Hispanic. Um, then there's the other numbers, but again, I'm going to focus on the Hispanic part. So if you, if you see those numbers and you look at our congregation here at Twin Lakes, does that reflect what the community, what the numbers are showing? And I just don't think it does. You know, TLC is not reflecting what the community is like. And I think we should wonder why. You know, we should wonder why we are not reflecting what the community is reflecting. You know, why aren't there more Hispanics in our church? And uh, so I, I wouldn't say I've experienced racism. Nobody has, I mean, everybody has been really nice to me here. I love it. But uh, just in general, I think there's uh, a little bit of an indifference to the green people, the Hispanics in our area. So, And it, it starts with things like this, awareness, prayer, and asking God to, to show us how we can uh, change to reflect that more accurately. Let me expand the question just a little bit. Was there a time where you felt judged or isolated or treated unfairly because of your ethnicity? Would anybody like to, to answer that question kind of as an expansion on the first one? Can I expand on that? Sure. <laughs> okay, so I'll be specific. One time that I, I felt that just nothing else. It was just because I was, I'm Hispanic. Uh, the company where I work, as Pastor Rene mentioned, I'm the operations manager there. And uh, most of our, the people in our crew are white people. And I went to start a new job one day, and I had a a group of, I think it was like six people, six white men that, you know, and that. so we show up to start the job and we went to talk to the contact person there. And we started talking to him and this person just kind of ignored me and started talking to another, uh, a white gentleman. And I would end, he would say, so where do you want to start? And I would say, oh, we're going to start. And then he would turn again to the, to the white guy and say, so, uh, where do you want to put the materials? And I would answer. I would say, oh, well, maybe the loading dock. And, and he would ignore me and again. And that was a time when I felt like, you know, he thought just because I was the only Hispanic in, a, in this group, I could not possibly be in charge. And that was uh, something that was very offensive to me. And that was an experience that I can share in, in, here in Santa Cruz County. Regina, you're nodding your head. <laughs> well, to piggyback on Jose's uh, story it happens often and uh, not necessarily so much here at Twin Lakes Church but there have been times and thank God I was raised in a Christian home loving family where I was taught that I'm validated and don't need to rely on Sorry. 
man's opinion of me. But I have a college education, have worked as a professional, and because my last name probably doesn't sound like it'd be one of African-American, I get labeled without people having even met me. And then when they see me in a professional environment, in a leadership management environment, of course, I'm good at picking up on cues too, and I choose to, you know, either acknowledge it or ignore it, just depending upon, you know, how the wind's blowing or, you know, I pick my battles, so to speak. But it is offensive, and sometimes you feel isolated, and there are cliques, and um, sometimes it's amusing, but then you learn to deal with it and um, move on. But even, uh, like Jose mentioned, the grocery store, you know, you think at Safeway, at, they don't have a number where you take a number at the deli, but obviously, just like at a four-way stop sign, I'm cautious of who stopped first. My husband will tell you that. And um, that being said, at the deli line, and I'm aware of who's the first one that should be um, waited on or, you know, um, worked on next, and I've had many instances where people uh, behind the deli counter automatically ignore me as if I weren't even there. And I wait for the person that they address to say something. And sometimes, usually it does, you know, oh, she was here before me, but it's automatic or in a business or professional setting where um, there are other people in management and they just assume, oh, you know, they're surprised or I get, where did you, where are you from? Or it's just the most bizarre question. And I ask them, where are you from? <laughs> you know, I just think it's weird. And people don't tend to think, you know, everyone hasn't gone to finishing school and that's okay. But it's just very odd. And um, we just learn, and when I say we, people of color, you just pick your battles because you just say, oh my goodness. It's just like, wow. And then we can have little laughs later. But um, it's just the oddest thing. And then I know when I first moved out here in 1990, actually, people would always think that I was, they knew I wasn't from here. And I would always wonder, how do they know this? And um, it was just odd to me. And then finally they would ask questions. But rather than get to know me, um, you make you have these preconceived notions or um, misconceptions and just not sure. And then some people had not experienced the um, being around people of color. And so it was a new thing. But I was always raised to we're hum we're part of the human race. So when I don't when I, you know, come into a room or get invited somewhere, I don't count to see how many African Americans are in the room or how many white people are in the room or how many Asians. It's just, you know, we're all here, we're all human, we bleed the same, we have emotions and feelings. And it's not when I think about my fellow brother and sister uh, of color, brothers and sisters of color, and um, we all just want to be 
respect it and validate it and not put into a box or um, stereotyped. And it's very hurtful because I have two adult sons who have been profiled, who have been labeled, who have been stopped and pulled over for driving while being black. And, you know, for people, um, white people to say, you know, just get over it. We've made so many strides. And I'm sorry, I'm probably going off. Uh, no, this is bit. all good stuff. But um, for white people to not, you can't understand unless you've, experience but at least validate or be empathetic and ask questions and have dialogue or do some research reading learning and don't just assume that people of color or you know we're not all criminals we are educated we are queens and kings we have contributed to uh, American history we have, you know, my ancestors came here, and I'm proud of the fact, but it's, you know, when I hear America is, you know, equality, and we're supposed to get over it, I don't think so. We have to work harder. People of color have to work harder. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care what, you know, social or economic background you're from. People of color have to work harder. So that's what white privilege is because no matter where you've come from, whether you are a white person with no education or um, educated, you have more privilege than people of color. And that's just a fact. And it's not anything to sugarcoat. That's just the way it is. Wow, that's so good. Thank you for saying that. Now, I want to give everybody here on the panel a chance to answer that, that first question. But I also want to piggyback on some of what you just said, Regina. You talked about getting informed. Uh, we have several books at a table in the back, books that some of these panelists recommended, and also books that have been recommended to me uh, by other African-American friends on how white American Christians can better understand the experience of people who are not in the majority culture. Uh, these books, I'd encourage you to pick up. If you want to take a look at them, you can even write them down and pick them up later. But we've got several of them available here in the back. We've also got a resource list available in the back of some books that we don't even have on the back table. Uh, I really have been growing in this area in the last uh, several months reading books by African-American people specifically here in America has just opened my eyes to this experience that I'm 55 years old and I had really not ever intentionally plunged into learning about this before. There's a lot to learn. It's really interesting reading and it helps you be a better Christ follower. And who doesn't want to do that? So let me dovetail up from what you said into another question. And, and questions like this, several of them were emailed to me. So this is going to be a long paragraph where I try to put these questions together. And then I would appreciate it if anybody in the panel wants to address this. Somebody wrote, I doubt that a lot of people would consider themselves to be racist. But many of us are probably shaped by our culture in ways that we are totally unaware of. 
are there any patterns of racial stereotyping or prejudice that even well-meaning people exhibit without perhaps being aware of it that you'd like to speak to and related to that sometimes white people can hear the phrase white privilege and can honestly think I've had no special privileges nobody handed anything to me I've had a tough at times I've worked hard for what I have I came up out of poverty how can that phrase be accurately understood or is there a better way to express the reality and difficulty of racism in America? So that's a, that's a big paragraph. But uh, if you could appreciate let's hear from Ekemeni, and then let's hear from Dr. Godin. Go ahead. Yeah, just if I could go back on a bit, but I haven't forgotten the question. Uh, just from hearing from other panelists about you know, their experiences with racism, I think it's important to understand when we're talking about racism, uh, it's on a spectrum. And so I think the problem in America is that we often think, oh, um, Klan members, burning crosses, we think swastika on cars, which is a blatant example of racism, or we think somebody uh, calling somebody a racial slur, that is racism too. But there are other, there, there's a spectrum. So you have microaggressions where you have, I have myself introducing myself to somebody with my name, which is a Kemeny, and people go, oh, well, that's a weird name, or oh, um, do you have a nickname? And like, what? Yeah, I do, but that's reserved for loved ones and those who I know. It's not for you to, um, to police the way, you know, there's a reason why my parents gave me my name. Um, and there's a meaning behind the name, which is God's time is the best. But, you know, that's not, I, don't, I shouldn't have to explain that. You know, to, to any and everybody who gets that. And that's, that would be an example of a microaggression where it's like Bill, Bob, Susan, Carol. We're used to those normative names um, that are typically reserved for, for, you know, white Americans. And then you hear a different name that's out of that context, and all of a sudden you're otherized. In that moment, you're made to feel different, um, even though you're coming to worship, you know, at the church or you're coming, going into work. I mean, it, it happens wherever you um, so that's a very um, clear example of something like, like, oh, you know, like that, that, that cuts people. And I don't think people always often understand that. Um, and then I think there's a, there's a toll, a racial toll that comes into play when people, when people of color enter into these predominantly white spaces and they speak about racism. This, these are traumatic experiences. What everybody's just recounting here is trauma. And trauma is a living experience. So it's, it's hard to come into these conversations. It's hard to open up your life um, and talk about uh, issues that you're you're still working through and may still carry, you know, um, until Christ comes back. You know, this is just something that's um, a hard thing. And so I just want to commend everybody for doing that. I do too. Um, and I'll, let me say, speaking to that, yeah. you know, we were talking about the, the composition of the panel, yeah, right. which kept changing. Yeah. It was <laughs> difficult for me to find people who were willing to be on this panel. Mm. Yeah. There were plenty of our African-American or Hispanic or Asian brothers and sisters in this church. And I said, have you experienced racism? They said, yes. And I said, would you be on the panel? And they said, not a chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who can blame somebody? Yeah. It's embarrassing, I guess, to want to recount past trauma. Mm -hmm. But so thank you all so much for being willing to do this. I think um, 
so I, I did want to say that that portion. I think it's also important for us to understand the difference between intent and impact, because I think people think, well, white Americans think, well, I don't actively have racial animus towards a black person or Hispanic person or whoever, which if we're Christians and if we're honest, the Bible does talk about in Jer Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else who could know it. Only God really knows it, right? And if you're a person, you do have biases that are shaped, you know, by the culture and by the things that we take in. So we're not completely being honest when we say that. Um, but, and even if you don't have an intentional, you know, animus toward a person, it's about the impact, what happened in that instance um, that, that led to the incident. So, for, so a very clear example of say like structural racism. I went to Westminster Theological Seminary I was the only black woman in my uh, graduating MDiv class, which was a very uh, traumatic and difficult experience for me on many levels. Um, and I, that, that's, that school, there's institutional racism and sexism there. The, the people there, may, they probably didn't mean to close people of color out or women out, but you could tell what an institution cares about by the, what they put the money behind. So there's no scholarships for women that are in the MDiv program. There's no scholarship for, um, for black women in the MDiv program. So what do you do? You come out, you know, you're, you're studying like everybody else, but the, the males in your class have a 50% off scholarship. Me, I'm saddled with debt, $75,000 debt from studying at Westminster. That's impact. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what the intention was, but that's a very clear example of institutional racism and what that actually looks like. And so when we're talking about white privilege, white privilege, my friend, a um, really good friend of mine, makes this really good metaphor. If you guys are familiar with toll plazas, going on the bridge, you know, crossing over to Oakland or Richmond, wherever you're gonna go, uh, you have to pay a toll. And so on the East Coast, we have tons of these things. And so I avoid them, I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I don't wanna pay you guys money. And so, uh, and so we have an easy pass. If you're familiar with that, okay, good, good. Easy pass or you go to the actual cash lane, you know, to pay and you got a way that takes longer, right? And so my friend, a good friend of mine, um, explains it this way, what white privilege is, is uh, white people have an easy pass on their forehead and so they just go through the line, whereas people of color have to go to the cash toll line, and they gotta get the change out, and they gotta count it, make sure it's accurate, and then give it, you know, to the toll person. And so there are some barriers, you know, that that keep us uh, from being able to make maybe um, the same, or maybe we even make the same accomplishments, but we're not given the benefit of the doubt. You know, she's a manager, but oh, we don't think she's a manager because she's a black woman. You know, whereas uh, a white person who doesn't even have a degree could step into a, say, uh, a Rite Aid and ask for the manager, and they know the manager is probably going to be white. You know, and, and they know they command the attention because, oh, we're just used to white people being in power. And so that's an example of what white privilege is. There's just this invisible benefits that come to you um, be, just because of the color of your skin. And if you want to learn more about that, that Peggy McIntosh wrote um, an article back in 1989. She was the one that coined that that phrase, it's called um, white privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack. So that's what white can, privilege Can I speak is. to that as mm -hmm. well? Mm -hmm. Yes, Nancy, please. Um, I just wanna say that uh, when you talk about stereotyping, it's like generalizing. If you have one bad experience or some person did something to you, you generalize it to the whole group, you know. Well, that black person did that, so they're all like that. 
And then the other thing in our stereotyping is I'm not the sole representative of all black people. We have different ideas, thoughts, perspectives, and sometimes people think, okay, you're the representative. And so we stereotype in those ways. And I just want to say in terms of privilege, uh, growing up, I grew up in the South, in Natchez, Mississippi, so the lines and the barriers were very clear. And so when you come to a place like California, it's not all, it's kind of blurred, but when you're raised as an African-American or a black person in a predominantly white society, we, you're aware of your ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. How am I going to be impacted? Am I going to be treated different? I have to know it. I have to look for it. I have to identify it because it's a part of my existence. It is a part of my survival. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about privilege, privilege is not having to uh, explain to your child that when you go out in the street and if you encounter the police, uh, maybe avoid the police, where you may tell your son, okay, if something happened, call the cops. I'm not telling my son that because my son may not come back alive. I have to have the conversation with my son. If you're stopped, let me give you the narrative. First, be respectful. Let them know everything that you're doing. Do not go in the glove compartment without narrating that I'm going to get my license. So those are the conversations when we talk about privilege, where you're not having to worry about your skin color or your hair texture. Or am I going to be looked at different? Am I going to be treated different? Am I going to be stopped and frisked? And I'm 55 years old as well, and I'll be 56 years old. And I will tell you, as a professional woman, when I go in the department store, as old as I am, I do not go in my purse behind any counter. I, if I go in my purse, I get in the center of the aisle so that mm -hmm. you see that I am going in my purse to get my glasses or whatever, that I'm not going to be accused. I'm socialized in that way. When I see the police, my husband and I, if I see the police, I tell him, there's the police. We're not doing anything, but I'm making him very aware and very conscious. There is the police. And that could mean that we might get stopped, we might get accused, you might get killed, so we're not doing anything, but act like you're not doing anything. Mm. And that's a part of the socialization of talking to your kids, that you're, you're black and you're raised in a predominantly white society, and what does that mean, and how do you act to stay alive, to exist, and to be? That's powerful stuff. <laughs> Regina, years ago, told me, you have two sons, big guys, and she told me how that she'd be walking down the streets of downtown Santa Cruz with her two sons. I don't know if you remember telling me this. And she said, I, used to, I would think to myself, watch this. Because she said, I knew what was going to often happen. Do you remember what you told me? She said, if there, if there were white people, especially white women approaching, and my sons were approaching, the women would either go across the street or they would move their purses to the other side. I mean, these little micro-impacts, as you said. Dr. Godin, you, you yeah. it looked like you had something to add to that. So I, I want to pick up on this, this issue of implicit racism. Racism is something we, we tend to think that other people do or biases that other people have, especially as Christians. But we all have them. And I, I, would, I would challenge you to go to a website. It's actually a Harvard study. It's called implicit. It's implicit.harvard.edu. 
And this is an online test, a series of tests that you can take. And they look for implicit racism in your attitudes. And you will be shocked if you think that you're never guilty of this. And I think it's important to realize this. Um, you know, we can be racist on a personal level. We can have bias, racial bias. We can have be racist on a structural or institutional level. Um, one of the things that has always puzzled me is that no one ever talks about racism as a sin. You know, but that's exactly what it is. You know, we are called to unity in the body of Christ, and and we are called not to be conformed to the world. And how do we deal with sin? Well, the first step is confession, which means becoming aware that you have these attitudes, right? The second is repentance, right? The third is supplication, and then finally, forgiveness. And I think that we should, we should look in ourselves to start and deal with sin, and deal with racist attitudes and, and, uh, and actions and biases the same way we deal with any other sin and be consciously aware of that. And that will help us grow and change and become more Christ-like because it is really the mind of Christ. You know, Paul talks about crucifying the old self. Well, this is part of the old self. It's part of our human nature. It's part of this tribalism we have. Um, one of my areas of academic interest is human evil, particularly corporate evil. And it's one of the things, one of the reasons that I'm at Oxford now. And you know, why do people in, in groups do terrible things, you know? Um, this is a very interesting question, and it's a sociological, it's a behavioral question. But the bottom line is, it is sin, and we are called to be different. We are called as Christians. And when that sin comes from within the church, that racism comes from within the church, it's, it's an anti-witness. It's a terrible witness. Um, I'm the only Jewish guy up here, a Jewish believer, and I can tell you, growing up and experiencing anti-Semitism, I'm older than you are, um, it really was what kept me from finding Christ for many years until I got to college. You know, because the anti-Semitism came from people who claimed to be followers of Christ. And, and, you know, there was a real disconnect there. So, you know, I think, again, I, I think we need to, if there's one point I want to make today, it's I think we need to deal with, racist attitudes and actions and biases, which we all have as sin. That's really good. <laughs> Once again, that website is implicit.harvard.edu. Implicit.harvard.edu. Very good. Very good. Yeah, come in. Real quick. Thank you so much for that, Paul. I think um, the reality is that racism has killed millions millions of people, literally and spiritually. I mean, I live in Philadelphia. Uh, it's a predominantly black city, and so many Muslim people that are um, black people that have gone, turned to Islam, turned to Hebrew Israelites and other cult religions away from Christianity because of racism, because they felt dehumanized, otherized in their church. They see that a lot of the white supremacy and racism is, is propagated by the white American church. And it's such a shame, particularly after the election. Now that's just sealed it. And so it's just like, Lord, what, what's happening? And that, that's just, just something that's been, is often lost in this conversation. This thing claims lives. Like it is a stumbling block to the gospel. 
Yeah. How? Why would these people want to come to Christ if you're saying Christ erases their ethnicity, Christ erases their skin tone, and Christ doesn't look anything like them? Like, yeah. like yeah. which is not true. Jesus Christ is a Middle Eastern embodied man <laughs> yeah. sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We need to understand that. And so I think that it's really there are very real impacts. Tamir Rice is dead. Rakia Boyd is dead. Yeah. Twelve people have died in Flint, Michigan. This is serious, you know. So. You know, your whole point that sometimes the gospel is sold as, quote-unquote, erasing your race, right? So let's talk about that. A question came in. Many, especially Caucasian Christians, have come to a place where they feel, since the Bible is clear, that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, that it's time to completely cease from even referring to categories of race or color and get on with simply identifying ourselves and our identity in Christ. But others are convinced that while the above verse is true, there's a lot of important work still to do, so it's not appropriate to, quote-unquote, move on from issues of race. Your thoughts. I mean, we've been addressing this in many ways, but can you speak specifically to that passage? It is true that in Christ we're all one, and yet you look in the book of Revelation and you see all people represented in heaven clearly visually, because that John sees that happen. So talk about that a little bit, Akemeni. Um, that scripture is one that people lob at me all the time in response to things that I write. And so, and it's a very eisegetical interpretation when people want to use that to erase, you know, um, our ethnicities. Paul was never, um, or, and not even just Paul, but the Holy Spirit through Paul, uh, was not intending to erase our races, right? Or our ethnicities. Um, so we have to look at the Trinity, you know, um, our, we worship a God who is one, you know, one God in three persons, right? So there's unity in diversity. And so we're one body, uh, um, saved not only um, unto Christ, but unto a body. Um, and, and we see that reflected also in Revelation 7, 9. And so that doesn't erase our ethnicities. Us together, we are actually in the image of God. And so we reflect God's creativity and his just um, wisdom uh, in, in choosing to make us, you know, our different ethnicities and our different upbringings and have us raised in the time that we're in. Um, and so that, that scripture was never meant to actually erase that. So we need to stop doing that. <laughs> we need to stop weaponizing the gospel. I mean, really, it's a very strong stumbling block. I mean, seriously. Um, but it's to celebrate the fact that, man, that now everybody is welcome. Jew, Gentile is welcome to, uh, um, to lay their burdens and their sins at the cross now. And now we can rejoice hand in hand um, as brothers and sisters. Actually, that, that mosaic shows just how sovereign and beautiful the gospel is. If we were all one, it'd just be like, okay, it's a cool club, cool cult. But that's not gospel fueled, you know, so. There's unity without uniformity, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, Jose, address that same thing. Um, in thinking about that, I was thinking of how there's a scripture in the Bible that says that Paul was going to send Timothy to minister to, Jewish, to the Jewish people in the area. But before he did that, he circumcised uh, Timothy. And, you know, instead of uh, saying, you know what, stop it with these differences. We're all one in Christ. He actually grabbed Timmy and said, hey, Timmy, come here. You <laughs> have to be circumcised. In other words, what he was saying is, you know, we're gonna, if you're going to minister to these people, you're going to need to adapt to them a little. You know, you, it shouldn't be like this, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And it became a missionary strategy to reach the Jewish believers in doing this. 
you know, and, and that's something that I don't think we're there yet where we can just erase all racial, you know, uh, identities, but more like we need to adapt to each other. You know, we, we are all welcome, but if we're going to minister to each other, then we're going to need to adapt to each other a little bit and accept who we are and celebrate that instead of trying to make problems out of it. Yeah. Amen. What you say, I'm a teacher, and I've been blessed to be around a very gifted speaker of God, my wife. And in teaching throughout the many years, and looking at scripture, I'm often reminded where it talks about in Genesis, God has no respect of persons. God also came to his, his family, his Jewish family, and basically said, you know, y'all will, will learn the word. And y'all will go to the Gentiles and teach them. And there was a power struggle. And God said, that ain't working. God came to his own. His own received him not. So what I'm saying is simply this. Any man, any woman who chooses to pick up their cross and follow God, he will take them in. They will become his. Pastor Renee also mentioned, which clearly stays in my heart. When talking about in Revelation, there was a great multitude of people. A number we cannot even count. And they came because they were black. They were white. They were green. They were brown. They were women. They were females. They were males. A multitude of people who were saved by God. There's also a multitude of people who will miss the mark. For those little things that you do daily. And that you think that you are doing something good and that's fantastic. And you're not. When it really comes down to it. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? What have you done for your neighbor lately? How have you uplifted someone else higher than yourself? Because we could be selfish people. Yeah, all of us. Dr. King said back in 1963, the most divided day in America is on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, and it's still divided. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Now, I'm a teacher. <laughs> That's why I do the plays that I do. I bring forth plays that are real, that challenge your mind. Not only Detroit 67, but there's a play coming up right here at Cabril that I'm directing. And it deals with the Rodney King beating. And it's a whole multitude of people speaking their hearts, their minds, of how that day or how that passage of time affected them. Have you checked it out? I really, really liked the play that you directed, Don, uh, Thursday night at UC Santa Cruz. And again, when, what time is it on today? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock again today. Uh, it's at the second stage of the theater arts department at UC Santa Cruz. Again, it's called Detroit 67. 
Uh, I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a raw play. There's some rough language in this play. Not a lot, but it's sprinkled in there a little bit. But, it, but it's, it's real. It's about what really happened in Detroit in 67. And interestingly, it's not a, it's not a, a, a bummer of a play. You're going to leave uplifted, but also educated. And I, I would encourage you to check, check that out if you have an opportunity to check that out tonight at 7 o'clock. I, as, again, I saw it earlier in the week, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, you know why this is so important, speaking to this issue, is that so often when we think of this issue, we think of it as being us versus them. But it's not us versus them. It's, it's all us. These people on this panel are us. These people are Twin Lakes Church people mostly, and, and somebody who graduated with, the, with their dean men from Westminster. I mean, this is, these, are, these are us. But, but you can tell when you, when you really take the time to listen to the, what people have struggled with, there are issues that sadly have been uh, unremarked and, and invisible to many people in the majority culture. Nancy, you were going to add something? Yes, I want to say that... Um to see each other, that we need to see each other, that everyone deserves a seat at the table. And my being at the table does not negate your being at the table. It enhances the table. And so we all bring different talents and gifts. And as the scriptures say, for we are many members, one body, and we drink of the same spirit. Amen. And so the, I, I think about that just in my husband talking about the um, theater troupe. He has the Rainbow Theater, but he has the African American Theater Arts Troupe who's doing the production that Renee is speaking about. And that is the only African-American theater arts troupe in all the UC systems, in all the campuses. That's the only one. And it's celebrating 25 years. And it has not... <laughs> and I say that to say that it has not been without struggle. It has not been without challenges. Because people think, okay, we don't want to hear about that. We don't want to know about that. But every voice deserves to be heard. Every story deserves to be told. Because I can learn from you, you can learn from me. And so I say that it's not that the university has been so open and welcoming of that. Mm -hmm. But it, it goes to what you say, that we can't stop at the sixth day. We got to keep pushing forward. We got to get up. When we fall down, we got to keep going forward because... Scripture tells us we're more than conquerors. We are strengthened in Christ. And so when we are Christians and we believe, we keep pushing forward. I'm not just a conqueror. I'm more Amen. than a conqueror. Amen. Yes. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. That's good. Um, well, we only have 21 minutes left, and I want to get to some of the questions that some of you panelists said. I really want to get to this question. Here's one. Um, I suspect, this person writes, I suspect that I and other white people like me are unintentionally clueless and patronizing. I genuinely want to be an ally to those who are marginalized, as Scripture calls us to be. How can I better learn to be loving in a real and Christ-like way and not in some superficial way that just reinforces the distance between us? In other words, what do we do now? There's the question. Hello. Uh, I, if I'm, <clears throat> I don't know why, I'm like really emotional today for some reason. <laughs> I was, <clears throat> man, I was driving here and thinking about what to say, and I think, uh, I think I'm really emotional because, um, I think there's fear. 
because I think, you know, probably people think, like, why are you up there? <laughs> um, I think for me, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a different experience. You know, I cannot personally relate to uh, the experience of a black person in America. Uh, but I have a unique experience. It's different. And, uh, and even from my Asian brothers who are full Asian and my Latin brothers, who are full, I have a very weird thing that happened. 30, 30 some odd years ago. Um, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to answer the question specifically, but I just felt like I should talk before it's over. <laughs> but, so, um, so I'll just be honest. And, and I, think, uh, I think the fear is to be honest is to offend people. Um, so, 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 um, I spoke recently at church, and uh, I made a conscious decision not to tell the story about my mom. And it's funny because people said, "Man, I, I'm like, I'm sad you didn't tell a story about your mom," and you know, I didn't want to say like. I didn't want to say why I didn't, you know, but if you've been to Twin Lakes Church, I've told stories about my mom, and I, I, uh, I've lived with my mom for my whole life, so, well, for a long time, and so I can um, emulate the way she talks, uh, and, and if you talk to a Korean person who's heard me uh, speak, they say, wow, you do that very well, and because I, like, listen, and I practice, and, um, <laughs> and I'm using it as a, as a device to tell a story. Um, but I think what I did uh, unintentionally was, um, like, make my mom a joke, you know. Um, <clears throat> because I, uh, you know, I use this, I use her stories to, like, illustrate a perp, illustrate a something, you know, um. And because it's funny, and, and those experiences, though they're painful, like originally I can laugh at them now, um, but unintentionally what happened was, you know, people felt sort of okay to come up and sort of mimic my mom's voice. Um, and what I hear is sort of the cliche sort of Chinese, you know, version of English, and um, and they're smiling, and I'm like, and I... And honestly, I, I, there's, I, I fear to, to say, hey, that, that's like insensitive to my mom because they're like, well, you do the voice, you know, and then I, I just like don't want to get into it. So um, there are many times it's happened here. Um, and if you've said that to me, I don't hate you. Um, but, um, you know, I think what happened was, you know, that, that sort of reinforces something I think that happens. At least I'll speak to the Asian part. You know, I think it, it what it seems like exists out there is um, Asians are smart, they're successful, uh, they're they, you know, good at math and like all these different things. And like you're okay, you don't experience racism or prejudice or or you just get over it. You guys are doing so well. You know, I mean, um, but yeah, it's. It's not true. 
Um, I mean, I've experienced being in a group of people, and they're all, everybody is white. I'm not, I'm the only one not. They're all laughing about this, um, you know, this uh, sort of joke on an accent and names of Asian people. And I felt unsafe to say anything like, can we not do this? You know, um, uh, and I think there's a fear of being, you know, being plagued as like being oversensitive, you know. Um, but it's, you know, the emotions are real. And for me not to use my uh, story about my mom in a message, like it was a big decision. And I've been thinking about it a lot because I thought, you know, my mom is more than a voice. <laughs> my mom is more than um, those stories. She's an immigrant who worked really hard. <clears throat> I didn't see her a lot because she worked all day to raise me and so I don't want to do anything to belittle her degrade her or give or give anybody any room um, to do that intentionally or unintentionally and so that's like a big decision that I made um, this last time um, this last um, sermon here at church and um, you know I just no matter what uh, it seems like uh, people group might experience you know the um the experience of the african-american i think in america um through documentation on video documentaries and movies and um, people speaking up it's it's very clear um, but for some other groups it isn't uh, like the asians um and and for some here in, in california there's a different thing with you know japan you know pearl harbor and that whole thing but um just to recognize that no matter how far it seems like these people have come, um, um, we all have, myself included, have these uh, racial biases and, and you know, uh, prejudgments on people. And to, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm getting lost now, but I, I was thinking on the way here, you know, even, um, I don't know why some people like turn to me and will say some accent, not just Asian or some other, like Indian or, you know, I think like, that's funny. And, and in my mind, I'm like, I don't think that's really funny. What if my Indian friend was here right now? Would he be laughing at this? Or would he feel um, singled out and ridiculed right now? And sometimes I think, you know, is it worth this joke, this laugh uh, to hurt somebody? Um, and, and so I've made a decision, no, it's not, you know. Thank you for sharing it. Again, the question, we can be unintentionally clueless and patronizing, yet be sinning, even in our lack of intent, as you both addressed. But the question at the end of that was, so what do we do now? Oh, no, that was really good, actually. I love that example because... There's a lot of things that we can do in the moment, like like him standing up, you know, when somebody's making a joke about somebody's accent, like, and telling them that's not funny <laughs> and explaining why, you know, and that makes the other person think twice. That's what it means to be an ally, standing in solidarity with his Indian friend, or maybe, maybe he doesn't even have an Indian friend, but he's saying that's dehumanizing. You know, you're, you're uh, making a caricature of an image bearer. 
you know, um, and so that's a prime example. Kemeny, you are, mm -hmm. you use that term ally a lot in your writing. Yeah. I've read you, mm -hmm. and that's a great resonant word. Right. And I'm wondering, just since you just mentioned it again, if you can tell us, we probably, we're all here because we want to be allies. Right. And you use that word a lot. Yeah. How can we be allies? Yeah, so, so what I, uh, another way to be an ally is to understand that as people of color, <laughs> uh, we've dealt with racism all of our lives. And so it's, it's something, it's an everyday experience that we, we always have to calculate, you know, the situation that, we, the, the situations that we're in. You know, with Nancy, she's in the aisle at Rite Aid, and uh, I'm only going in my purse. I'm in the middle of the aisle. Of the aisle, that's really deep, you know, but that's a very, very real experience. That's not uncommon um, for us. And so uh, I think, for, so what I'm saying is our white brothers and sisters are coming to this conversation so late. You know, so there's 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 terminology that we're using like allyship, uh, white privilege, um, systemic racism, institutional racism, white supremacy, all things that we just rattle off easily because we've been talking about this our entire lives. Um, and so for, I think the best way to be an ally for, I always tell my white brothers and sisters, is to read. Listen and read. You know, um, that way it's not just passive that you're not just receiving this information, but you're also reading um, up on, on what it means to be, you know, uh, black, Asian, uh, Native American, uh, whatever the, you know, racial group is, is, but really study to show yourself approved. <laughs> not, not with the scriptures, but just, you know, but to, but to really understand our experience. So, I mean, there's a whole plethora of resources out there. Everybody's on this deep um, do-it-yourself kick. If you want to learn how to build an addition to your house, you go to YouTube, you go to Google, and you figure it out. You go to Pinterest. But why is it, though, that when it comes to racism, we are expecting our Hispanic brothers, our Native American brothers, our, brother, our black brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters to educate us? That is not our job. That is not. And that, that adds another level of a burden on us. And so, and I'm not saying you can't ask questions. If you have that relationship, then you can. But, but don't. Don't saddle your brother and sister with another um, burden. It's, we're supposed to bear each other's burdens, not add to it. And so learn, you know. And so we do have books, you know, to kind of get you started. And I think Valerie has some links to some resources as well to get you going. But it's it's all there at your fingertip. So that would be my my suggestion. Listen, you know, take this in. I'm glad that you all are here. I'm glad it's packed out. That's wonderful. Um, but also read and and learn. Um, there's tons of things that uh, that are out there now so anyone else want to address that kind of what do we yeah. do now <clears throat> that's a big question there's no easy answer for it but um, I believe that there's a scriptural answer to it it's very general but uh, in Nehemiah when you read about the construction the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem uh, it talks about the people not having an opportunity to get together to read the scriptures for a long time and one thing that um, Ezra does, he's one of the priests there, the main priest. He, the Bible says that he gathers all the priests, all the leaders of the congregation, and they read the scriptures, and they discover a commandment to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, which means uh, the tents. Uh, and he says that we're not doing this. We're not, it's in the scripture, and we're not doing it. So what he does is he immediately makes a proclamation for everybody to do what is right before the Lord. He says, go and gather whatever you can to make your tent and celebrate the way that the Lord uh, wanted us to celebrate. He made corrections at that time. And my hope is that Twin Lakes Church, learning from all of this, we discover areas that need change and that we make corrections 
and that we do what is right before the Lord. What that means, we're going to have to find out together. But there is a lot of work to do. Um, I'll just finish with this. You gave me a mic, so I'm going to talk. The way I see it, you know, if somebody uh, came to the parking lot and told you, I'm going to give you 20 bars of, 21-pound bars of gold. You would bring a box to bring the bars in. If you said, I'll give you 20 pounds of uh, gold dust, you would bring a bucket to bring it in. Same gold, same value, different form, but you would find a way to bring it in. And that's the way that I see it with people. We're, we're looking at bodies. We need to be looking at souls. We need to give them the value that they have and find a way to bring them in. We need to do that with people because we, we need to stop counting bodies and start counting souls. That's what the Bible calls us for. Because I, I just think that nobody should have to break out of a, a stereotype box that we put them in. You as a white person, you shouldn't have to break out of my white box. I shouldn't have to break out of your Hispanic box or your black uh, box or any of that. We should all be doing what is right before the Lord. And uh, I think this is revealing that there's a lot of work to be done. That's right. Well, thank you, Jose. <laughs> Paul, did you have something to mention? Yeah, go ahead. So, you know, we're called to be salt and light. And in the unity in which we're called to, you know, I would say, you know, we need to get involved with people who are not like us. There's this, there's this concept in sociology, it's called homophily, and it means that we tend to self-associate. So if you look at a neighborhood, and over time, if you, just looking at attrition, when those people who leave a neighborhood get replaced, they tend to resemble the people who are already there. And this is how we get divided. And I think, you know, we need to make a conscious effort to, to become involved with people who are not like us, and not just with respect to race, but with respect to other faiths and, and um, other political beliefs uh, and, and backgrounds. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's really key. Let me go, since both of you have dovetailed into this with your comments, let me go to the final question, uh, since we've got six minutes left. Oh, this has been so good. I've learned so much. And I've got a lot of repenting to do uh, myself. Uh, you know, my, my suggestion would be that everybody here, uh, before this conversation gets too old in your memory, uh, ask yourself, what, what one thing kind of stuck out for me that really kind of punched me in the gut, that really hit me? And take that home tonight and pray about it and ask God to reveal to you if there's some way that you personally need to repent in that, in that area and uh, how you can contribute to a solution in that area. But let, let me dovetail into this. Uh, what's your hope as you move into the future? And specifically, what are some Bible verses uh, that you find that, you, that particularly relate to this issue, that, that both speak to this issue, but also give you, give you hope about this issue? Okay, so the uh, one scripture that uh, really speaks to me in this is, that scripture in John 17, 21, where Jesus actually prayed that we would be one with each other as he and the Father are one. So that, that just shows me that if Jesus had to pray about it, it's a, it's a tough issue. And <laughs> he must have known something. So <laughs> I think we'd, you know, we need to dive into the scriptures and find out what we need to do to move forward. Thanks, Jose. Regina? For me, uh, scripture strongly condemns prejudice and favoritism. We should not be judging 
off of appearance. And in uh, John chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge the righteous judgment. And also in James 2 and 1, My brothers and sisters, do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So those are some scriptures that uh, really mean a lot to me. And also I'd like to just quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe the unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Amen. And we know that from scripture. Absolutely true. Nancy. Yes, I would say just on the other conversation, just having the dialogue, talking with one another, uh, even though the conversation may be difficult, but owning our role in it as an individual, as a collective body, and standing up for what is right. My father said we survive off the good people in this world, and good people come in all shapes, colors, sizes, ethnicities. And so when you see wrong, let's join forces to stand what's stand for what is right. Speak out to be silent, as he said, is we're part of the problem. And so uh, scripture that I wrote is Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. And then 1 Samuel 16 and 7 say, for the Lord sees not as man. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Mine is short. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Do you love yourself? <laughs> You're good to yourself, right? Well, God says you're supposed to do that to your neighbor. And that's coming out of James 2 and 8. James chapter 2, verse 8. James tap, chapter 2, <laughs> verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'll just, I was going to share James 2 one, so I, got, I found a different one. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't want to, I felt like I'm like a pastor at this church. Um, <laughs> so I stole this from a message I heard yesterday, uh, which like most pastors do. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and, and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And just to say, like so many have said, uh, meeting with each other, meeting with people that look and sound and think differently than you. Um, for me, I'm always encouraged by Revelation and the fact that we really are overcomers and that we will win by God's grace. Um, and so I've been referencing this, but I'll read it. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. 
saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The sacrifice that you've all made revealing these things, you know, it's just not comfortable to, I won't say who, but some, another person that I, I talked to about being on the panel, and this is going to break your heart, said, oh, I don't want to come across as a complainer. But to be willing to say, we are together, part of us together, but this, these are real issues that we really, we really have to try to understand one another so that we can bear one another's burdens and repent of areas where we've gone wrong and really listen for that. Uh, that's huge. I've, I've learned a lot. I really appreciate all of you and all of your time. I love you all, and I'm glad you're here tonight. Let's together thank our panelists. Wonderful job. Thank you so much. Really Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. And God, I pray that you would help this to just be the beginning. I pray that this was a pebble in the pond and that the ripples from this would be felt in a, in a real positive and constructive way by the power of your Holy Spirit in this body and beyond for ages to come. God, I, I, I'm just uh, impressed by Achaemenes' observation that evangelism, that a as Jose said, souls are affected by this issue. And God, we do not want to put obstacles in the way of black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Jew to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we commit ourselves to not letting that happen as far as is possible for us to remove these obstacles so that people can get to know you beyond these barriers that exist in our society. May we be a part of the solution, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks a lot for coming. Check out the book table in the back.